that can create its own solidity because a lot of people go to like vipassana retreats like 20 years 40 years and they still don't have stream entry which is like the first level of awakening because they're just becoming better meditators better observers the whole point is to deconstruct the meditator and erase that duality between the object of meditation and the meditator so that there's absolutely no distinction between the observation the observed and the observer it's all just one seamless process Frank, Frank Yang, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. This is highly, highly anticipated, almost a year in the making. You're a mindfulness coach. You're also known for your art installations and your workout videos, which puts myself to shame and counteracts the mindfulness. You travel around the world. You influence people, or at least attempt to influence them for the better, and to show people how to be more present with themselves and with the world. Can you fill in what have I missed? What should the audience know more about you? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really identify myself as anything, but if like on the human level, uh, if you ask me what I do, I would say I'm an artist, filmmaker, uh, I do a photography and I do a lot of weightlifting. I do bodybuilding and fitness coaching and I also do uh, spirituality coaching, what I call consciousness coaching. Uh, and it's pretty much, uh, what Kenneth Fall called contemplative fitness. Yeah, because I really like uh, the relationship between fitness and mental fitness, physical fitness and mental fitness. Uh, so I've been meditating also for 10 years, mm -hmm. and I also played the violin for about 30 years, and um, I've been weightlifting for about 20 years. So those are the kind of the main things that I do. Yeah. As you know, Toe, this Theories of Everything channel is about interviewing people with regard to what is fundamental. So how can anything be fundamental? What is it? Oh, well, if you look at it from a direct experience point of view, which is what contemplative fitness is about, you know, all contemplative traditions is about the subjective experience. And they'll tell you that's the only thing that, you know, is your subjective experience. You don't know anything outside of that. Even the perception of uh, external reality is uh, arising through consciousness, right? So when I say consciousness, a lot of different spiritual traditions like to call it different things, uh, true nature, uh, nature of the mind, or awareness or emptiness or you know the hinduist calls it brahman or god consciousness or you know just your your natural state or the isness so that is the number one thing or probably the only thing you can be certain of and as a coach what i do is to guide people or at least um, offer some insight from my own path as a matter of direct experience how to recognize the true nature of experience or consciousness but what you really are at the deepest level. And if you want to talk about the nature of reality, well, you are reality. You are part of reality. And whether or not the nature of mind is the nature of reality, um, people have been debating that for like, I don't know, billions of years. And the way I look at it, you know, the materialisms and idealisms and the solipsisms and all this stuff. And my point of view is it's all, it's all true. It's the simultaneity of all those different perspectives. And they're all codependent arising uh, to give rise to experience. So I don't really get onto any particular view about the nature of reality, um, but you have to you have to pin me down. I'm a pragmatist, you know. Like I discover what's true in accordance to what works in this moment right here. Yeah, I myself am a fan, a huge fan of definitions, even though there are limitations to them. So I see both sides. I'm sure you get asked plenty, "What is consciousness and emptiness?" Okay, well, according to the Buddhists, uh, emptiness is a word that is used to describe <laughs> what you really are at the deepest level. So what you are is not a thing, it's a process. So one way to look at emptiness is that it's a process of co-arising or co-dependent origination. 
for example, me and you are speaking right now, and uh, we're both arising and co-creating each other, just like how particles, when they observe each other, they kind of you know give rise to each other. And before this process of interaction, you are in this state of interdeterminacy, like a pure potentiality kind of thing. It's like a journalist cat. Like, you know, when you put the cat in the box, if you don't open it, it's neither dead nor alive and both kind of thing. So emptiness could be defined as a process of co-creation. And before this process is realized, um, what you really are is in a state of indeterminacy or pure potentiality. So the me, quote unquote me, is only arising the way it is at this moment because of the way you are arising. So neither of us has inherent existence apart from this relation or an interconnectedness. So in and of ourselves, we are empty. That's one way to uh, perceive emptiness. Another way to perceive emptiness is more of a, more of a direct experience kind of thing. For example, um, because of uh, the meditation I've been doing, um, we can talk about the techniques later, but I've been meditating for 10 years. And on May 25, uh, 2020, I went through a shift uh, what I describe as uh, reaching the uh, wisdom axis or the emptiness axis of this spiritual or contemplative development to the end point. And I, everything from that moment on, uh, it was a, there was a permanent shift in my consciousness, in my baseline consciousness from that point on where everything that I perceive is quote-unquote empty. What that means is that my direct perception right now is boundless. It doesn't have any uh, separations. Uh, it is vast. And the awareness is panoramic, and uh, everything becomes like holographic. Everything I perceive is like a hologram, kind of like how you put on a virtual reality goggle. You know that the image that you perceive is not ultimately real. It doesn't have an inherent existence. You're just perceiving, you know, a holographic image, dancing pixels and lights. And when you take off the VR goggle, you think that you are in the real world now, and everything is solid. But in actuality, of direct experience, at least. When you realize your true nature, when you take off the VR goggle, you're actually still perceiving a virtual reality, uh, the virtuality of the mind, you can call it that. And when I look at the computer screen right now, there's no distance between me and the screen. So the air between objects or the gaps between objects is as full as the object themselves. So you can say that all the objects, all the quote-unquote material objects that I perceive in the quote-unquote external world are holograms. Or you can say that... Um, the distance or the, the space between all those objects are full. So that's another way to perceive emptiness in a more kind of a perceptual way as a matter of direct experience is that everything is full and empty simultaneously because if something is completely empty, it's also completely full. So that's why a lot of spiritual traditions focuses on love and compassion because emptiness and love are two sides of the same coin. If you are a quote-unquote completely empty, you also are completely full and you're able to express love. So that's another way to look at emptiness. And the, I think the most important thing to know about emptiness is that emptiness and form are identical. You know, uh, emptiness is form and form is emptiness. Or another way to look at it is samsara is no other than nirvana. That's another way to perceive emptiness. Um, another way to perceive emptiness, and this is uh, will probably be the last one that I go into, is what Idea Shante calls the, uh, the dark light of the absolute. So that's how he describes the true nature. It's like, Emptiness is kind of like the merging of a singularity, which has no size, no dimensions, and no locations, with boundless and infinite consciousness. So you know how a lot of um, spiritual mumbo-jumbo say, you're everything and nothing, and that's what they're talking about. So in my direct experience, it's really hard to describe, but if I can describe it using that, you know, 
under that context of the apps, uh, the, the dark light of the absolute, it feels like something that's extremely dark, but also extremely bright. Something that is everything, but it's on nothing. So it feels like you're a singularity that's small, quote unquote, smaller than the size of an atom, which, you know, that's just a metaphor because it doesn't have a location, it's not even a point. But you, you, as a matter of, of direct experience, that singularity manifests all of your reality, at least all of your reality as a matter of direct experience. So it's a little bit like, um, I guess, physics when they say, you know, the, uh, the singularity that of the big crunch gives rise uh, to the big bang, things like that. Yeah. So is this continuous awareness required for one to be awakened? Oh, it depends on who you talk to, actually. If you talk to the Buddhist school, they'll actually tell you that um, the continuation of consciousness is actually just another ground that you could get attached to. Like I, I've seen a lot of people that um, are on the spiritual path and before, okay, here's how I describe the entire spiritual path in one sentence is to dissolve every single speck of solidity in your body mind. So basically the only reason why you're not abiding or recognizing your true nature, which is again, it's, it's this infinite boundless space that's aware, um, is because of the separation between you and the environment. So the whole spiritual path is about dissolving that solidity. And that solidity, some people call it conditioning. Some people call it, you know, the ego mind. Uh, some people call it your shadow. So basically, it's just like everything that you are accumulating throughout your whole life, like lenses of perception, as some people call it, that are sort of laced or filtered on top of uh, true nature, which is, again, it's boundless. So the process is a little bit like a Michelangelo tripping away a marble and revealing a form underneath. Uh, but in this case, the form is formlessness. <laughs> so, um, so if you talk to a Buddhist, they'll tell you that everything, including awareness itself, is empty. It doesn't have an inherent existence. It's not a thing. It's not something that you can attach your identity to. And if you look at the Buddhist meditation, especially the Theravada tradition, uh, a Vipassana meditation, uh, the highest meditative attainment, which is what I call the gold medal of Olympic, um, of contemplation, uh, in, in, uh, the, the gold medal level of contemplative fitness is uh, sort of a, this attainment called a cessation or a fruition um, or Nibbana. So in that case, um, the highest attainment in meditation is actually unconsciousness. Because what the Buddha means when he says Nibbana is actually translated to a blowout or lights out. So when you reach that state of the stateless state, your entire universe disappears and then reappears again. So you sort of blink out of existence for a bit and you come back. So in that moment, not even consciousness exists, not even awareness exists. And you sort of use that as an insight to see how your entire reality or the entire universe is constructed. Oh, according to the Buddhist, I'm not taking a stance for Buddhism or any other school. I'm just saying that I had those experiences like hundreds and thousands of times. And uh, when I first started to have cessations, I was quite attached to it. Actually, I was like, holy shit, this is like the highest attainment, even though it, it, I don't even look at it as something special anymore. But then before I was like, wow, this is like, you know, the highest attainment in meditation and I attained it. And there was still a little bit of ego there that was attached to that, uh, that, that experience, the non-experience experience. So the insight is that 
when you go into a cessation and you come back from it, when you blink out of existence and then reappear again, sort of like a reset button on your computer, it does two things. Number one, you see particle at particle how your entire reality, your perception, your cognition, your body, this whole field of experience um, is constructed moment to moment to moment. So that gives you the insight of how everything is a mental fabrication. And that's another way to perceive emptiness, is that everything is a mental construct, which means that nothing has an inherent existence, right? So another thing it does is for some reason that, that I don't know about, because I, I guess I think people are still doing like science behind this, uh, but like, you know, people have had cessations for like hundreds and thousands of years. But um, more recently, like some of my favorite teachers that, you know, talk about how to uh, attain this um, realization actually are scanning their brains to see what's going on in the brain when they have a cessation. So what happens during a cessation as a matter of direct experience is that for some reason, a cessation just shifts your consciousness to another level, like your baseline consciousness. You see people take psychedelics or even have a lot of crazy mystical experiences, but then after the experience, they just contract back to the original state before they had the experience. That happens all the time. But for some reason, after a cessation, now there are macro and micro cessation. There are like huge cessations and small ones. A big cessation, for some reason, just perpetuate your mind or your consciousness into another reality, or I shouldn't say another reality, but you know, another level in terms of your baseline consciousness. So that's why I think a cessation moment is interesting and is important. But is it necessary? That also is a debate that goes on between different contemplative schools for like hundreds and thousands of years. So I'm not going to take any stance. This reminds me of the transmutation of a, of a drunkard into a sage. <laughs> is there an objective or an end goal to the evolution of consciousness? End goal of the evolution of consciousness. Well, first of all, you realize really consciousness has no levels because you can't get more infinite than infinite. <laughs> so... But the reason why it seems like consciousness has a level and it seems like that consciousness that evolves is because your mind interpreted it that way. So consciousness only has level from the perspective of the dreamscape, from the perspective of the mind. So when you're still going through the process of dissolving your solidity and deconstructing uh, the separate self or the, or the dream self, uh, it does feel like you are evolving in terms of levels. And I did that for a while. And for a while, I was like, holy shit, I'm making consciousness gains. Like, I'm getting more aware. I'm becoming more conscious. But then ultimately, I realized that consciousness has no levels. Only the dream has levels. Or you can say that consciousness includes and transcends all levels in the dream state. Again, when I talk about these things, it's always a neither and both. It's always like, you know, because the ultimate, the absolute, and the relative are one. Uh, so it depends on which perspective you're taking. If you're taking on the conventional level, yeah, consciousness has levels, you know, in accordance to the mind, relative to the mind. But from the absolute perspective of consciousness itself, consciousness doesn't have any levels. But since the absolute and relative of the you know, Buddha mind and the everyday mind are one, which is that that is really the ultimate realization, then uh, it's always both and neither. So a question that many people are likely thinking is why would a God consciousness, assuming that our true nature is more than we are now, fragment itself into individualized personalities that we seem to be? Why would that happen? Um, well, first of all, I don't know if there is a single entity of consciousness. I mean, I have experiences like that where I was for sure convinced that there is one single entity of consciousness, but I'm agnostic about that right now. So 
again, going back to the both and neither, my stance is that you are neither the many nor the one. There could be. Okay, let's just take that stand that there is a, a unified consciousness. There's just one being. Like, let's just call that the universe, just to be a little more um, less um, confusing. Okay, there is this universe. Why would this universe, which is uh, even as a matter of a direct experience, you can experience how everything is just made up of one substance, you know, the, the sort of the unified field of zero, the, the way I call it, the emptiness is just one substance. Just like how physicists say, you know, when you divide atoms, you go down to the uh, subatomic particles, it's just empty space and everything is just a vibration of that space. So matter is the energy kind of thing. Like hardness, the hardness of solidity of matter is only the different intensity and vibration of the empty space and empty space itself without the the sort of the congeal the congeal version of it would be like matter. If you don't congeal, it would be like empty space. But anyway, um, well, because the absolute, the unity, also call it dependent arise with form. So emptiness and form, again, going back to the inside, the emptiness and form are identical. So all the forms and appearances and the multiplicities and the manys and the divisions that you see cannot actually exist without the unity. And the unity cannot actually exist without the separations because they're codependent rising. So they kind of need each other. You can look at it in terms like of like evolution about how like each organism sort of need to feel separate in order to survive. But then even though the ultimate uh, nature of reality is oneness. So within this oneness, there, the, the multiplicity arise, right? So you can't have one without the other is what I'm saying. So whether yeah, on one level, it doesn't evolve. Uh, and on another level, uh, it, it does. And I do think that um, if you want to talk about the evolution of consciousness, um, I do think that there is sort of this intention like this, uh, let's just call it the universal intention or the cosmic intention for consciousness to wake up to itself. So there seemed to be some kind of a progression there on that level where consciousness just wants to recognize itself because it is itself. It's kind of like, you know how people like like to get drunk and party and have sex and take drugs, go to raves, even making money, buy a nice house, buy a nice car, why do you want to do that? Even though if they don't know anything about consciousness or like spirituality or like unity, they're trying to feel whole, right? So I think everything that we do is to feel whole, is to return to the source, quote unquote. Yeah. So, but then we can't return to the source unless we feel separate first, even though they're actually ultimately the same thing. So it's almost like God is playing hide and seek with itself. In order for God to realize itself, it sort of have to, you know, separate itself out of this cosmic joke to, uh, go through this process of returning to itself, even though on the ultimate level, again, there is no duality. Everything is already one. This must be, well, depending on how you look at it, comforting or discomforting to the materialist that in an infinite amount of time, their decisions, they'll come to exist again, make those same decisions, essentially be given a second chance, a third, a fourth. Yeah, that's, I think that's the whole pr process. It's like you wake up and then you wake down. So this whole process of like awakening, it's all about waking up and then integrating emptiness and integrating the God mind or infinity back into the finite so that you see no distinction between the infinite and the finite, uh, the divine and the mundane. That's true non-duality. So recognizing emptiness, which is what 99% of the spiritual teachings talk about, which is the waking up part, is only half of the game, right? The other half of the game is called integration. How do you, after recognize that everything is empty, 
put it back into the form. After recognizing that everything is a mental fabrication, how do you re refabricate that into like a form? So it's almost like going back to the ground zero that gives rise to all the programs. And then now you got to you know, restart new programs uh, and just live life. Because at the end of the day, it's about living a good life. And a lot of people get stuck in emptiness. They just kind of like abide in the, the vast stillness of infinity and then they just like do nothing. Um, but I think that's a cop out. Yeah, it's, a, it's called spiritual bypassing. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G.com slash everything and use the code everything. What is, so then, so then what is it that science gives to us, affords us? What is value? Uh, I think we're starting to understand what goes on in the brain uh, through this process of awakening and meditation. So we're getting closer to it. But at the end of the day, though, like as a matter of a direct experience, like people have discovered this truth from uh, the matter of a direct experience, that the true nature of experience, the true nature of the mind. 
for thousands of years, and that insight hasn't changed. Anyone who goes through the spiritual path would uh, receive the same insight. So that speaks to a sort of a fundamental law of mind or even the law of reality because, you know, the mind is part of reality. And if you look at modern physics, a lot of things that the modern physicists are saying, such as the observer's effect, you know, Schroeder's cat, um, or string theories, it actually fits very well with uh, what the contemplative traditions have discovered. Like they're like just two sides of the same coin. So like sometimes I call this path, uh, this meditative path, uh, doing physics from the inside, where physics is doing physics from like they're trying to you know, dissect the objective world. Um, the contemplatives are doing that from the inside. They're discovering the nature of mind, but the nature of mind and nature of reality, again, they're kind of one and the same and they codependent arise. So you need both. Yeah, you need to, both, you need to dissect the experience of reality from the inside and the outside. Yeah. What are the grounds and paths and what's the difference between concentration and contemplation? Okay, um, I'll give you an overview of the spiritual path. Well, basically, like I said earlier, the whole spiritual path is about dissolving every speck of solidity you experience in your body mind. Um, from, you know, solid form to liquid to smoke and then to air. So that's pretty much the whole spiritual path. But how do you do that? How do you turn everything into a hologram? Well, you can do it in a few different techniques. But I like to make it simple. I like to just condense them into two categories of practice. One is expansion and then one is contraction. So that sort of answers your questions about uh, the difference between uh, concentration and awareness. So if you uh, use the Vipassana technique, which is your basic mindfulness, you are sort of contracting awareness, which is boundless, without any borders or boundaries and it's still and it's just always there you, you you contract that awareness which is your true nature into a point of concentration so when you watch the breath from a meditator inside the head you are doing concentration work so what you're doing is you are using attention to deconstruct the object of meditation and the object of meditation could be the breath that's what most people start out with. Or it could be you know, the body. You know, you do body scanning if you go into a 10-day going car retreat. Or it could be uh, a mantra even. Or it could be, uh, I don't know, the statue of a Buddha. So basically, you pick an object of meditation and then you contract awareness to a single point of concentration and you just investigate into the nature of that object. So that's your basic mindfulness or vipassana. So the reason to do that is because Oh, well, first of all, the ultimate goal is to discover the nature of experience, right? So you're using the object of meditation as this anchor or this uh, tool to see what the fuck it is. So the, you investigate into the, the nature of the object of meditation. And if you go deeper and deeper and deeper as your concentration power becomes uh, you know, stronger and more powerful, you go deeper into the true nature of that object of meditation. So, for example, the breath. At first, if you talk to a person who has never meditated, what the breath is, they'll tell you, oh, the breath is the breath. For them, it's completely conceptual. They might have an image in the head of them breathing. Or they're like, okay, the breath. And you go a little deeper. Okay, the breath is actually made up of what? Inhale and exhale. Okay, now you go a little deeper into the experience. And then you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the breath. You realize that there's no such thing as the breath at all. There's just uh, made up of infinite numbers of particles that are constantly rising and passing away constantly arising and passing away. 
and that there is no solid entity in that experience, right? So you can apply that insight to the body as well. You know, if you use the body as an object of meditation, if you look really deeply into the nature of what the body is, you realize that as a matter of direct experience, you don't actually have a body. The body is just made up of clouds of sensations that are, again, constantly arising and passing away, morphing, undulating, fluctuating. There is no hand, there is no head, there is no feet, there is no chest as a matter of direct experience, except for dancing, vibration, and uh, particles that are arising and passing away. So that is the how you get to the true nature of experience through this, what I call the dual mindfulness. The reason why it's called dual mindfulness is because there is still a duality there, there at least if you still go into the process. There is still a duality, a separation between the meditator and the meditated, between the subject and the object. And that is the thing that you're trying to uh, deconstruct and dissolve to reach non-duality, to reach oneness. There cannot be any separation between the subject and the object, between you and the world, between the object of meditation and the meditator. But if you do Vipassana, you are going to start out with the meditator, meditating on the object of meditation. But if you take this all the way, the more you dissolve the object of meditation, the more you dissolve the meditator as well. It's kind of like, you know, when a cat is like taking apart the yarn ball. When a cat is uh, ripping apart and taking apart the yarn ball, the cat, which is also made out of the yarn ball, is take, be taken apart as well. That's pretty much the whole process if you go down the Vipassana path. So you, another way to describe it is like you kind of zoom your experience or zoom your identity, you know, into the smallest component of experience. And then you go inside the atom and discover that, well, it's just made up of empty space. The, the most two important insights is impermanence and no self. So there, amongst this uh, dancing sensations, amongst this, uh, the, the flow of sensations that are constantly arising and passing away, you can't find itself in there. Right, so that's the, the, the contraction method. And the other method is the expansion method, which is what Zen Buddhist calls uh, riding the ox backward. So basically, um, when you first start meditating, obviously you still have a very solidified center, right? Um, you still have a very solidified body mind. So in Zen Buddhists or in like the Dzogchen tradition, they ask you to just sit. You just sit and don't apply any techniques. Don't even contract your awareness to attention. You just sit there. So what happens when you sit there is that if you just sit there for long enough, all the body's conditioning will start to dissolve. So you start to kind of like fake it until you make it kind of thing. Right, so you kind of even though you, the boundless awareness hasn't completely opened up, you try to like expand the mind as vast as you can. Right, so you try to abide in this infinite space as much as you can, and then whatever conditionings in the body mind that gets uh, that uh, that uh, arise that will be sucked into that space. So that's the uh, expansion part of the equation. So one is relaxation. The expansion part is the relaxation, the surrendering, the letting go. And uh, the other contraction is, you know, you use an effort to concentrate on the specific object of meditation. So you're kind of drilling the mountain from both ends. But if you only do Vipassana, you are going to end up in the vast entry space. And if you only do the uh, do nothing meditation, you are going to start doing Vipassana as well. Because if you just sit there and do nothing, like I said, all the tensions in your body, mind, all the uh, solidities and traumas and conditionings, they will be released. So one is... So one is you're letting God dissolve you, and the other is you using the meditator uh, as an anchor to, to dissolve you, but you actually end up in the same spot. Yeah. So the only technique of the do-nothing meditation is letting go of any constrictions, grasping, or contractions, and resistance to the body-mind, right? The exact same way that you release a fist after holding on to it really tight. 
So it's not really a doing. Uh, it's a practice of non-doing, letting go, right? So anytime you feel a sensation, and when I say sensations, uh, what I mean is everything from sight, sound, the body, emotion, thoughts, any kind of sensations that are congealing, you simply let it go the same way that a dog is biting onto a ball really tight, and then you just letting it go. Letting go of the ball, what Michael Taft calls dropping the ball, right? So the do nothing meditation, uh, you can actually also do Vipassana from the perspective of the open awareness. Right? You can investigate into the emptiness of phenomena from uh, the perspective of the Godhead. Godhead vipassanizing itself. Right? It's called vipassana right? or non-dual vipassana. So the difference between the do-nothing meditation and vipassana is only the degree of effort and the contraction versus the expansion. Right? So the more you can contract, the more you can expand and vice versa because the mind is like a rubber band. So reaching a cessation is taking vipassana to the max effort degree until you reach the singularity. And then you flip yourself inside out to total expansion. Right? And the pitfall of do nothing meditation is that um, there can be very subtle and microscopic sensations that are congealed that you're not aware of because you lack the concentration power to detect them. That's why even in Dzogchen, uh, which is pretty much the highest teaching in Dzogchen, uh, is the do nothing meditation. They ask you to do years of plenary practices where you're just kind of doing uh, mindfulness and, and vipassana. Um, and also, uh, people who do a lot of do-nothing meditation, uh, they can create an identity out of awareness itself. Right? Where in vipassana, you can clearly see that even consciousness is part of this arising and passing away. right? And consciousness is also part of this process of codependent arising. All right? It's not a separate substrate apart from that which is conscious of. And the pitfall of vipassana is that you can easily get attached to the stages of insights and uh, create more resistance through that or the meditator. Uh, and again, when I say insight, uh, it's not a conceptual or a theoretical thing, right? It's a direct seeing of what's really going on in your experience, right? Yeah, I know a lot of what I'm saying here sounds paradoxical and probably nonsensical to the mind because you can't grasp any of this with the intellect. So the less you conceptualize and theorize about reality, Actually, the paradox is the more in one with reality you are. Because reality itself is not going to question or theorize about itself. Because it is itself. So the theory of everything of the mind is the perfect merging of expansion and contraction, uh, both in practice and in direct experience. Uh, so you're merging the uh, emptiness school of Buddhism with uh, the open awareness school of uh, non-dual reality. So the theory of everything of the mind is sort of like the perfect merging of expansion and contraction, both in practice and in direct experience. So you're merging the uh, Vipassana empty school of Buddhism uh, with the uh, non-duality school, the open awareness school, uh, or the Zen tradition. So it's the perfect merging of effort versus effortlessness. Now you're trying to find that uh, the balance. That's what meditation is, right? Uh, you're trying to find that middle way, right? Uh, that's what the Buddha's first teaching is the middle way, right? The middle way between uh, expansion and contraction, which is uh, also means the simultaneity of both and the transcendence of both. Uh, when that happens, in a sense, uh, there's no more expansion and contraction. That's where true equanimity lies. So this also transcends the debate about whether consciousness is permanent or not, right? Because unconsciousness gives rise to and is codependent arising through Superconsciousness. So it's both. Right. So that also transcends the duality between life and death. Right. Um, the existence and non existence. So you're kind of totally dead 
but that's why there's only lunch. Do you have a daily ritual? Do you have some methods? Um, I just do the do nothing meditation now. Yeah, I don't really apply any techniques because once the uh, once the uh, the uh, empty once the emptiness access is completed, there's no more insight to begin there. So once you recognize emptiness, then that's it. Like you, once you lose the center of experience, it never comes back again ever. So once that's done, there's no more to be done in terms of vipassana for me. So what I do now is even after the center is dissolved. There's, there can still be some really deep conditionings that are left in like, you know, very deep part of your body. And then it, that usually takes like, you know, seven to 10 years to dissolve, to completely dissolve. Uh, some teachers say it, take, it doesn't completely dissolve. You you go through, for, for the rest of your life, you're going to be integrating this insight because just life just goes on because life is conditionings, right? So what I do now is just, I just sit there and do nothing. And then just let awareness sort of clean up the whatever remainder of the solidities, uh, the remainder of the condition is that, that that's that are still there. So that's the integration part. Like they like to say, you first wake up and then clean up and grow up. So the clean up part is pretty much the integration part. Yeah. So another really common technique that people use is uh, kind of like a contemplation path. It's called self inquiry. So self inquiry is also called the natty natty method. So 90-90 means not this, not this, not that, not that. So anything that arises in your direct experience, you just label it in a visceral way. Uh, you kind of have to feel it out, you know, not just intellectually. Now, this is not me. This is not self, right? 90-90-90, not this, not that. So it's very easy in the beginning where you just perceive a cup and you're like, oh, this is not me. It's easy, right? But then uh, you start to know sensations too. Uh, the sound, oh, sound is rising, not this, uh, the Visual field is arising, not that. Um, when you get to the mind, it gets a little tricky. Can you perceive thought? Can you look at the thought of yourself? If you can look at it, if you can perceive it or experience it, it's not this, not that. Right? So it's just kind of peeling away the layers of the onion. Right? And then when you go down to the very deep end of it, you start to perceive even the witness. Can you witness the witness? If you can witness the witness, the witness is also not self. Can you perceive perception itself? Perception is also not self. Can you be aware of awareness? Can you be conscious of consciousness? Can you perceive even God consciousness? If so, if you have an experience of God consciousness, then it's still something that's arising in experience. Then you simply uh, objectify that as well. Say, oh, that's not me, not self. So you kind of objectify everything in your direct experience until the subject vanishes. You turn everything into an object, right? So once you turn everything in your direct experience, including uh, this whole field of consciousness into an object, then where's the subject? It disappeared into it. So one way to look at it is that there's only the object, there's only the world, and there's no self. And another way to look at it is that there's only the subject, always self, there's no object. So that's another way to merge the true self and the no self school, right? You know, they lead the duality between subject and object. Okay, so I'm sure Westerners get wrong plenty about imagination and how this may lead to quote-unquote manifestation. Most people, at least in the West, believing that it's a fantasy of a kind. The way I look at manifestation is just let the universe or just let your experience or unfold without a doer. So if you just let nature unfold without a doer, pretty much every single moment is manifestation. That's how I look at manifestation. Manifestation to me is not communicating with higher power. It's not visualizing some things that you want and then getting it. Because when you realize emptiness, you don't want anything anymore because everything is full. So 
there's nothing that I want in terms of like manifestation, but then every moment is manifestation. So like the way I experience reality is like, it's kind of like just the universe giving birth to itself moment to moment to moment. That's the ultimate manifestation. Yeah, that's how I look at manifestation. Because I, I, I don't know how to answer that question because I don't really manifest things because I don't need, I don't feel like I need to, like I, there's nothing that I want to manifest. It, it, it seems like everything that is happening, whether imperfection or perfection is just the way it is. Like in my direct experience, there's no such thing as imperfection. Like even the quote unquote imperfection is perceived to be perfect, right? Even that's going back to how like form and emptiness are identical, right? Like even solidity is perceived to be air. So, so like, again, going back to the, the, the process of like dissolving yourself from like solid object to, to liquid, to smoke, to air, then what is a, like, what is a hologram? The hologram is pretty much emptiness and form combined, right? You see an object but then it's actually holographic. And so are emotions. The way I experience emotions and perceptions and uh, objects and entities are all holographic. Even when I perceive a rock, it feels like I can just penetrate through it. It feels like I'm just perceiving something that doesn't have any inherent existence, that is just an, just an image. So for me, there's no difference between imagination and reality. Yeah, it's just particles and, and sensations. Yeah. Like the, the fundamental structure of the image in the mind is no different than the fundamental structure and texture of the image going to go outside the mind because there's no difference between inside and outside. Yeah. Okay, so the rebuttal is that the real world has more solidity. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes, that's just a level and a degree of solidity, but it's made out of the same stuff. Like dreams are a less solidified version of quote unquote reality. So when you are walking around the, in the waking world, things are more solid. When you go to sleep, things are more liquidy. So the reason why uh, when you take a psychedelics, things start to breathe and start to morph and colors start to change is because at that moment, when you take the psychedelic, your brain or your mind is becoming more malleable. You're dissolving the mind. That's why people get glimpses of their true nature on psychedelics because when you take a psychedelic drugs, it dissolves your lenses of perception and it dissolves the solidity in your experience very quickly. But then if you dissolve them very quickly, they also come back and contract back into form very quickly. But through meditation, you go through years to years of this rewind the brain into like locking that inside of realization into a permanent state. Tell yeah. us about any states of bliss or negative entities that you've encountered. Okay, so I've experienced a lot of crazy shit like on my journey. Um, I would say when I was going through the unfoldments, I was experiencing mystical experiences. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone 
of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. That are just as powerful, if not more powerful than like my DMT trip. Like I remember the the shift into non-duality, like my first thought was this is like as powerful as my 5 meal dmt trip but now i see my now it's my direct perception now it's my direct experience but now it's completely ordinary to me now so the only reason why you think uh, your 5 meal experience which is you know non-duality or boundless space or uh, just having a glimpse of your true nature is because it's only insane or it's only a, a profound experience again relative to the ego mind so any kind of spiritual experiences or mystical state that you have is the byproduct and the side effect of the dissolution of your conditioning. And that's where a lot of people in the spiritual circle get around is that they think that mystical experiences are the thing that they're supposed to uh, be looking for. Uh, mystical experiences are really nice. You know, I, I've had experiences of like going to other dimensions, um, entities, um, past lives, um, again, just experiences that are just as powerful as like psychedelic trips. But then now they're all transcended in a sense because there is not much conditional left in this body mind. So psychedelic experiences, um, uh, uh, most of it, and and mystical experiences, you know, even you know, entities visiting me and things like that, they're just a byproduct of my subconscious mind getting burned off. Once the dream is unfolded, there's not going to be much of those experiences anymore. What you get is just the isness, because the the, the, the Entities and other dimensions and um, mystical experiences still presupposes uh, form. It's just the content that are arising in this vast context of infinite consciousness. Okay, Frank, what are UFOs? Um, I mean, if I see a UFO right now, I would be like, oh, that's really cool. Like, we have aliens. Um, but then I wouldn't perceive it to be fundamentally any different than perceiving anything else. Like, it wouldn't shock me. It wouldn't, like, my fuck me. Yeah, because once you see through a nature of mind, nature of experience, and how everything is pretty much made of the same fundamental uh, fabric, um, everything is pretty much the same. <laughs> but then that's where the beauty is also, because then you stop. E even the distinction between things are seem to be empty, and that's where I think where compassion comes from. But they, of course, you can still enjoy um, the, 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 the multiplicity of forms. You can still enjoy like the difference between, like, you know, a Ferrari and or a Lamborghini, you can you can still have a preference over form, but you know, like ultimately, there's no distinction. And I think this this realization actually makes that makes the world more beautiful because then your identity or your your ego is not attached to this or that. Right? So out of again, that's another example. Going back to the thing we talked about earlier, how oneness gives rise to uh, multiplicity and how they kind of make each other even stronger. The more you realize how that everything is homogenous, the more you can appreciate the the multiplicities. Yeah. So to me, you can say to me, my direct experience, everything is God. Like you're never apart from God. Like you can never get closer or uh, further away from the source. Uh, and when a Buddha talks about emptiness, he's talking about God as well. So it depends on what tradition you're coming from, like your cultural context. 
how you like to use your words. Like I said earlier, like the way I describe this, this natural state is I can use God to describe it. Um, or I can use emptiness to describe it. So I can use, I can say this is the Buddha mind, or I can say this is Christ consciousness. But those terms, like I don't use, like to throw them around because they have so much connotations. So I just like to go with a more like a neutral kind of word. I just say this is your true nature or the nature of mind. What is the dark night of the soul and depersonalization? The dark night of the soul is pretty much um, the process of contraction on the spiritual path. So going back to the, the cycling of um, contraction and expansion, see, the, everything in the universe is contracting and expanding, right? Um, you know, when you go to sleep, when you wake up in the morning, uh, day and night, uh, the seasons, or even when you uh, do weightlifting, you're walking, cutting, and, you know, breathing, you're the inhale and exhales, um, life and death, you know, getting on with a girl, breaking up with her, uh, <laughs> your cells like you know contracting and expanding so everything is contracting and expanding so if you since your channel is called theory of everything I'll say the theory of everything if I can describe it in, in one sentence is this process of contraction and expansion so when you go through a spiritual path when you start to meditate and when you start to pierce through the veil of illusion and get into the emptiness of things each time you have an opening, each time you pierce through the veil of illusion and get an opening into the true nature, the boundless space of true nature, some of your subconscious and your traumas and conditionings, whatever is separating you from this vast space, um, just this more solidified version of this vast space uh, surfaces. So you're making the unconscious conscious or you bring the shadow to the light. So when the shadow is brought into the light, um, you are forced to look at your stuff, right? So you can be very uncomfortable. Another way to look at dark night of the soul is the process of the dissolution of the ego. So if you look at ego as sort of like a program or, or a matrix, when it gets attacked, when you start doing some uh, meditation practice and you start seeing through how the ego is not what you really are, when that program is undergoing attack, it's going to cling on to itself harder because, you know, like any other program, if it gets attacked by a virus, it's going to do everything in its power to survive. So that process can be extremely uncomfortable. So a lot of people, they meditate and meditate, oh, everything's great, but then suddenly they go into this state of depersonalization where they have a glimpse of their true nature, the emptiness of things, but then the other half of them, like they have one foot in the emptiness, another foot still in the world. They have one foot in, you know, the vast spaciousness and you know, the groundless ground, and then they still have another foot in the ground. So they're still trying to hold on to the ground. They're still trying to hold on to their ego identity while at the same time having some kind of glimpses into the infinite nature of reality. So that is where the dark night of the soul comes from. It's when you expand and then you contract back again, you feel very uncomfortable. It's kind of like a, a, a withdrawal from like a really good psychedelic trip or like, you know, a, a bad trip or something like that. Yeah. It's like once you, uh, once you experience God in divinity, now you get to experience hell until you transcend them both. <laughs> because they, they cannot exist without the other. You know, people talk about like, you know, experiences of love, the experience of God, all those great mystical explosions. Oh, my consciousness exploded to the universe. That's fucking great. Now I feel like a God. But then the other side of that coin is the contraction. You can't have expansion without contraction. That's the loss of nature. So you also have to embrace and stay equanimous to the experiences of dark night of the soul and see how this process of expansion and contraction are two sides of the same coin and that they can be transcended. This has been brought up plenty and he's been interviewed before, Leo Gura. What where do you feel like you comport and where do you feel like you disagree? 
Uh, I haven't watched his videos in a while, actually. I used to watch his videos when he talks about um, like how to do self-inquiry and things like that. I found him to be very useful until, um, I don't know, about four, three or four years ago. I just I haven't really watched a lot of his videos. Yeah. Um, but, but from what I know, Leo Gurat talks a lot about the, the, the God consciousness thing, right? Yeah, so in my stages of awakening, I like to um, categorize, even though ultimately there is no levels to this thing, but then through the process, I have five stages of awakening. The first stage is the ego phase. Um, that's when your identification is with the ego mind. That's pretty much everybody if they haven't you know, you know, discovered that they're not the ego. So once you discover that you're not the ego, the ego started to dissolve. The solidity in the body mass started to dissolve. And you open up the space of awareness more. And now you can abide in the witness. That's the second phase, what I call the witness phase, the witness consciousness. So that's when you identify with being this witness. Now that's meditation like one-on-one. -on -one. When we first start to read the power of now, I could totally ask you to like, you know, be aware of your thoughts. You're not your thoughts. Now you, you are the, the witness of your thoughts. Just shifting your identity from the ego to the witness. But the witness is actually just a subtler version of the ego. Because by the witness phase, you still have a lot of solidity. You have a little bit of space, but still a lot of solidity. And then you keep dissolving that center point. You keep dissolving the, the solidity of the body mind, and the space opens up more. And then now you enter the third phase, the third stage, what I call uh, God consciousness or infinity or being. That's the everythingness phase. Now you experience everything to be you. But at this point, even though the, uh, the solidity, the center is still not completely dissolved, it's very thin now. It's very subtle. It's very tiny. So when the solidity in the body mind becomes very tiny, the space opens up even more. So what happens during that phase is a lot of people, they will cling on to that vast spaciousness and attribute their identity to everythingness. So that's why a lot of people start to say they're God or that um, I am everything, I am infinite consciousness, which I went through the same phase myself. Um, and then I think it's at this phase um, that a lot of people attribute their experiences to the nature of reality. Yeah. Okay. Now, because the rest of the solidity or the rest of the ego is still, you know, somewhere in your field of experience, even though now it's very tiny, it's still going to take credit or cling on to this vast spaciousness or any kind of spiritual insights or experience that you have and make it into a thing, ratify it and objectify it and um, theorize some kind of uh, a theory into the nature of reality because this vast spaciousness is so prominent. It's like the only thing to be real for you at this point. But even at that stage, there's more to go. Um, you continue the dissolution. Now you enter the nothingness phase. This is what I call the emptiness phase. So now your identity is shrinked down to almost like an atom now. But then you, there's still a little bit of you that's trying to cling on to emptiness. So each stage, you have a ground. So the point is to use one ground to dissolve the previous ground until all ground is off and you become the groundless ground and it's just fully falling. And then the fifth stage is what I call the natural state. So the natural state is the complete merging and the transcendence of all the previous four stages. So I'm not suppressing any stages or I'm not saying any stages are wrong. I'm just saying that um, you can get stuck in one of those stages and then the, the, the final realization is actually the, the merging and the transcendence of all the stages. So some tradition focus on one stage more than others. For example, if you talk to the Hinduism school, like the non-duality school, they focus on the 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 infinite space more than the Buddhists. Even though, even though if you take just one stage and max it out, you are going to have the same insight as 
if you take the, the emptiness phase and max it out, you are going to reach the same spot as the emptiness phase in, in, in stage four. And the Buddhists uh, tend to focus more on the emptiness phase. Yeah. So that's why you get a lot of debate uh, over the over the course of history about like the, the Neo Advaita school versus the Buddhism school. You know, the Buddhism school would be like, oh, uh, the Neo Advaita people didn't go deep enough. They haven't realized that also Brahma is also empty. Brahma is also just another fabrication. That Brahman is also just another ground, right? And the the um, the Brahman school or the Hindu school will be like, oh, the Buddhas they haven't realized the the infinite space of consciousness, right? But then I think I actually think that the natural state is sort of like the merging of those two stages or even the stages before that. Um, so in a sense, the way I describe the natural state is kind of like the the permanent merging of uh, a, a permanent cessation and infinite consciousness. So you're taking two schools, both the Buddhism, the nothingness school, and the uh, the Hindu school, the, the God consciousness school, uh, the awareness school, and then you merge them together. So should people practice Tantra without protections, such as empowerments of Hiraka and Shakyamuni? I'm not I'm not sure what they are, but I, I know a little bit about the Tantric school versus the the you know the the Sutta school. The Tantra school focuses more on the form side of things. And even the, uh, I think the Vajrayana uh, of the Dzogchen school, they focus more on the ground, like they focus more on the awareness part of it. And Buddhists focus more on just seeing through the emptiness of everything. Buddhists are trying to attack things from just from from the pure emptiness perspective, and the the, the Dzogchen and the Vajrayana school are, are going at it from the form. They're going from form to emptiness in a sense, and the Buddhists are going from emptiness to form. But the, again, they're actually you know, talking about the same thing, just like the. The, the Hindus and, and the Neo-Vaita and the Dzogchen people talk about the true self. And Buddhism talk about no self. But no self is true self. Because when you shrink down to nothing, you're also everything kind of thing. Right? So that's why like all the stages are valid. It's just like, you know, some schools tend to focus that their techniques on one specific, uh, more on one specific um, stage than the others. Because you kind of have to, you know, if you if you're... Uh, if you're a tradition, you kind of have to build your practice around like at least you know some aspects, uh, one aspect of awakening over another. But at the end, it's all the same thing to me. Yeah, to me, tantra is just the taking the emptiness and then putting it back into form. So the reason why people associate tantra with sex, a lot of I guess a lot of people do. I, I did, you know, when you talk about tantra, you're like, oh, it's just like a sexual union, right? So the reason why sex is such a big thing in tantra is because when you actually recognize the emptiness, well, you're supposed to practice Tantra only after awakening, only after recognize emptiness. Yeah. So after recognize the emptiness, you kind of go back into the world and you engage in activities that would otherwise trigger you before. So sex, for example, sex and love or like relationship stuff, it's like the biggest trigger for most people because the deepest uh, conditioning for most humans is sex and love because we're here to reproduce as biological organisms. So if you can abide in the vast stillness, if you can hold the view if you can still um, abide in the panoramic awareness during sex instead of contracting to just your fucking dick, then maybe uh, your realization is legit. <laughs> so is it safe to, I, I guess you, you can practice, you can do any kind of practicing at any stages. It's just a d d degree of intensity. It, it, you, it might not be safe to practice like mindfulness, you know, like, you know, any kind of practice can trigger all kinds of stuff inside you. So like the, it depends on where you are in your practice and how your brain is wired and a bunch of different things. So and then what is your relationship to sex? Do you find it intrusive to your path, your path of enlightenment? 
I used to. I, I used to be a sex addict. Um, I used to be like fabbing like five times a day. And actually, the one of the reasons why I got into meditation ten years on that yeah ten years ago is because I my sex drive was so high and um, it was interfering with my life. I wanted to use meditation to kind of you know make my sex drive a little bit lower. Um, well, to me, sex is a catharsis, right? Again, going back to expansion and contraction. Like the only reason why we want to have an orgasm. Other than to feel unity, uh, again, that's the same thing. Is to be, feel to feel expanded, to feel unit unified with another person. So, in a sense, um, without that contraction, sex plays a very different role after realization. Because I guess you could say awakening or truth realization is the ultimate catharsis. Because you're so relaxed and like you know, your 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 being is so vast and, and spacious and balanced that. You don't need to contract and then expand again, in a sense, right? Because uh, in, in a sense, it, in a sense, of the, I like to call the state that I'm in right now um, just the universe fucking itself twenty four seven. Yeah. <laughs> so when the universe is fucking itself twenty four seven, because it just feels like it's like without solidities in the body, mind without you know the center that's filtering experience, experience is experiencing itself without the experiencer, and when that happens. It just feels like every moment is penetrating itself. So when every moment is penetrating itself, um, the role of sex becomes something that isn't a necessity anymore. Like before, at least for me, because I was such a huge sex addict, before I couldn't live without sex. I was like, you know, if I can choose between living uh, the rest of life, not having sex or dying right now, I'd probably choose dying right now. <laughs> so sex was like uh, so was like survival for me, right? But then nowadays, it's just like, well, it's cool to like have sex, but then if I don't have it, like I don't think about it. Yeah, it's 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 kind of like, you know, you know, the preference over like, you know, water or Diet Coke, you know, like you, you can have still have preference sometimes for Diet Coke, but then you can quench your thirst with water. <laughs> it's not a necessity anymore. Yeah. All right, man. Getting back to this daily routine, what's your workout routine? Uh, my workout routine right now is I just do whatever at the gym. Yeah. Because uh, I used to be like a pretty, um, I used to work out like a lot. And that's actually why I got into spirituality as well. It's just, because I wanted to like upgrade myself. It's not like self-improvement and stuff like that. Yeah. And little did I realize the ultimate self-improvement is self-destruction. <laughs> so in a way, fitness is like kind of like self-destruction too, you know. Let's take the the example of fitness since we're talking about fitness. So the reason why I wanted to work out is because I wanted to feel connected to other humans. So I wanted to grow a bigger uh, I wanted to grow bigger muscles and get stronger because you know I wanted to connect with other humans because I wanted to upgrade myself. I wanted to upgrade myself so I can connect with other humans. So that's why I got into spirituality. Another reason. So there's two reasons why I got into meditation. One is to reduce my sex drive. Another is to upgrade my brain. So I went through this whole fitness phase where I was super identified with the body. Like I wanted, to, I just, all I wanted to do was like, you know, jump high, run faster, and build bigger muscles. Um, so I could, you know, just be like superhuman. And then I was like, oh, okay, if you want to be superhuman, you can uh, exclude the mind. You know, you have to like upgrade your consciousness too. You have to like upgrade your brain. So I started to read a lot of philosophy and all kinds of stuff and get into like, you know, especially the philosophy of the mind. Yeah. And then after getting into the philosophy of the mind, I started to get into psychedelics. After psychedelics, I was like, hmm, maybe there is a way to permanently kind of access those kind of higher mystical states of consciousness without psychedelics. So I got into meditation. So it's a part of this process of self-development. Hear that sound? 
That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Then I started to meditate. And kind of like how you wanted to get bigger muscles when you work out in meditation, you're expending your, yourself, right? You keep expanding yourself until you become everything. But then again, going back to the process of expansion and contraction, if you want to become everything, you have to also become nothing. So self-improvement taken to the extreme level is self-destruction. So you can only truly find the self when you lost the self. <laughs> yeah. What would be a more superior definition of enlightenment? The definition of enlightenment to me is just recognize what you really are at the deepest level, like what you really are. That's it, just recognizing the nature of experience. And the nature of experience doesn't have a solidified entity behind anything. Uh, there's no thinker, hearer, observer, doer, seer inside the head. There's no avatar inside the head that's directing your experience. There's no one in the driver's seat, so to speak. So in, in a sense, enlightenment is about deconstructing that solidity in the center, again, going back to dissolving solidity, is to deconstruct that observer in the head that's looking out to the world. And they realize that the universe has always just been perceiving itself without a center, right? Frank, I'm gonna be frank, you have a rich metaphysics, but on your Instagram, man, you're like a Greek sculpture. How do you reconcile the two? Is there a disconnect? There used to be a disconnect, yeah. There used to be a disconnect, but then that was only because I haven't fully integrated form with emptiness. Because like every, nothing is excluded, even with uh, realization, like nothing is excluded from infinity. Everything is okay. Everything is part of it, right? So just because you have a nice physique, it doesn't speak, it doesn't determine your um, level of realization in a sense. I mean, there uh, there was a phase when I was like still like in the, in, in the no man's land where I haven't integrated the inside, haven't integrated the emptiness inside into form completely yet. And I will, every time I work out, I feel very contracted up and I hold this shit, I'm doing this for the ego or like, you know, uh, this is like, detrimental to my spiritual process and spiritual progress. But then that's only because the rest of the, the ego was saying that. The rest of the ego was making a story out of that. Like reality itself doesn't, doesn't make that distinction. <clears throat> like everything is part of that, you know. You can be a 300-pound bodybuilder, pure muscle, 5% body fat and still be like enlightened. 
there's absolutely uh, there's nothing off limit with enlightenment really yeah you can do whatever but then some people take that to the extreme and they, they just start doing like really shady stuff but that's another conversation <laughs> <laughs> so then how is it that you handle negative emotion <clears throat> the way I experience negative emotions is that I don't quantify I don't experience them as negative nor positive they're just kind of neutral. It's just a, when I experience quote unquote negative emotions, they barely arise nowadays. But sometimes if they do arise, ex experience just like smoke that's like puffing within this vast spaciousness. So any kind of emotion, both positive and negative, because you know they can't one cannot exist without the other. All emotions are experienced as like wind blowing through the sky. Once you become the sky, the wind like it doesn't really affect the sky, even though it can be there. Like the weather can still go through like its uh, process of transformation because nature again undergoes through the process of expansion contraction all the time. So you can still have good weathers and bad weathers, but if you are a body in the sky, if you become the sky, which is the nature of mind, um, it you're not affected by the weather, but the weather can still be there. So every sensation is self-liberated. It's only when you cling on to sensations that you that you create suffering. So Shi Jin Yang said, um, suffering is pain times resistance, right? You can still have quote-unquote negative emotions arise, but then if you don't cling on to them, if you don't identify with them, if you don't resist them, they're not manifested as suffering. Do you believe yourself to be enlightened? Um, <laughs> like, I, I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know if I want to answer that question because why it, <laughs> I mean, it depends on your definition of arahship. Yeah, yeah. Um, Arhash, okay. The 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 most direct, the most direct definition of arhatship, uh, which is the the quote highest level of of awakening in according to a Theravada map. So I'm only gonna talk about this from Theravada map, right? Because we talk about those words like enlightenment, especially enlightenment. You know, different people define it differently. So I'm just gonna go with arhatship because it's more it's more contextualized. Right, so the the simplest definition of an arhat, according to the Buddha, is in seeing only the seeing without a seer, in in the heard only the the hearing without the hearer, in the heard only the heard, in the seeing only the seeing, right, uh, in the thinking only the thinking without the thinker. So basically, what he's trying to say is uh, your direct experience after you've dissolved the knots of perception in the center of your head, or somewhere in your body. So if you look at it from that perspective, then yes, because uh, I haven't had a sense of a hearer, center, or observer, or perceiver, or a sense of doer in two years. Yeah, so in my experience, every single sensation is just uh, perceiving itself without a center. So the, the awareness is this kind of this just one perennial field where every sense door is, is, is unified into this one field, and every sensation within it are uh, perceiving itself, sensing itself. Yeah, and that realization is permanent. So I don't know. It's very weird. It's just like once the center drops, it's dropped very permanently. It's really fucking weird. I can like drink a bunch of alcohol and still have no center. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, sometimes condition can still arise. But then again, they're perceived to be without a location. They're just kind of like again, wind blowing the sky. Like where is the wind in the sky? Is it in a certain location? You can't find it. Like there's a sense of uh, unlocatability and a sense of um, ungraspability. You can't grasp it. It's there, but you can't grasp it. It's kind of like the rainbow. You know, the rainbow is there, but not there, right? <laughs> That's how I perceive things. Though. What occurs after death? 
what happens? I don't know. <laughs> I don't really think about death. Yeah. Well, in a sense, I don't know. I, the whole notion of life versus death I, doesn't make sense that much to me anymore because you kind of transcend the duality between existence and non-existence. You realize they're just concepts. Yeah. Like life cannot exist without death. So I don't know if this is life or death. I don't really know. Like, you know, there's no distinction between life and death in, in my experience. Because I don't even know what life is, honestly. <laughs> how do you see the universe? Do you think about how it's all structured and where our place is within it? Uh, yes and no. Like, I used to think about that a lot. Especially, like, uh, like I said earlier, when, when, you, when you're undergoing through this process, when you direct experience, you're walking around, waking life experiences, like, dramatically alter, you start to, like, formulate all kinds of theories about the universe. But then all, most of that is still just a projection of your ego. Are psychedelics then a useful tool for reaching certain states? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, psychedelics are great tools. But psychedelics to me, it, it, again, it's just a, a tool for you to dissolve the solidity in the body mind. And again, all the special experiences I experienced with psychedelics uh, are no different than special uh, states and mystical experiences you experience when you're meditating or when you like lucid dreams or when you like have a Kundalini explosion. Like I went through this phase where like my whole chakra opened, like every chakra in my body opened up. And then I was obsessed with Kundalini for a while. I was like, holy shit, I had a Kundalini awakening. And I started looking up, you know, just literature about Kundalini, like open up a third eyes. And then I realized that opening up a third eye is only a means to an end. You, you're opening up the third eye so you can perceive the wisdom eye. And when I say the wisdom eye, what I mean is just emptiness. So what the Kundalini is, is pretty much just that the solution of all the conditions and the traumas that are stored in your body. And for some reason, all the traumas are stored, you know, in, in very specific places, like in your spine, like, you know, the, the, the chakras. So I experienced all those chakras opening up. And at that moment, I was like, holy shit, this is like, this is like, that, that's when I was realized that you, you, you can experience um, mystical states and states of consciousness that are as powerful as, as psychedelics just by you know meditation just by um dissolving the solidity in the body mind through vipassana or whatever techniques they use so after i went through all that i realized that there's no distinction at all between psychedelic experiences and like jhanas or like samadhis and any kind of like meditative absorptions they're just the byproducts and the symptoms and the side effects of that dissolution so that the way i look at kind of explosion is like tripping on your own conditioning so if you take a lot of psychedelics, if you cling out to those experiences or you, your ego recontextualize those experiences, not even in psychedelics, but even in meditation, if your ego clings onto those experiences that make a thing out of them or create a new identity out of them, um, then you just pile out more conditionings. Like you're not actually making progress. Well, like for most people, like they, regardless of how much mystical experiences that you're getting, if you're, if you're practicing, you are going to make progress, but you can easily get sidetracked by those experiences. The way I look at like psychedelic experiences or any kind of mystic experiences or energy stuff, kind of leaning like dreams or like going to other dimensions, aliens, entities, is looking at it from the perspective of the two axes of development in terms of uh, uh, the path of awakening. So with awakening, you're you're going from the source of consciousness. Sorry, you're going from the surface level of consciousness to the source of consciousness. That's the x-axis of development. So you're going straight down to the source. If you're a non-dual uh, practitioner, or like if you follow the the teachings of like Ramana Mahashi or Nisargadha, they're just you know that's why it's called direct method. You're going straight to the source. Disregard all the experiences that you ever came across on a spiritual path and realize they're all part of the dream. You go straight to the source. 
but in the in the, the vertical sorry the horizontal uh, axis is your like cities and you now mystical experiences energetic stuff most people when they go down to the source or at least they try to get on the source if you call this awakening you are going to encounter a lot of energetic stuff like kind of linies and you know jhanas mystical experiences so for most of it is a zigzag line down to the source so that's why even i experience a lot of like crazy mystical experiences so so some people though they instead of going down to the source they, their experiences are so powerful that they just get sidetracked so they're actually just going further away from the source or they at least they, they just go they, they go that way horizontally by indulging in those experiences instead of going down but that's okay too because it's cool to be a conscious explorer you can be a consciousness explorer without recognizing the true nature of consciousness but then like if you if your goal is to go down to the source and realize your true nature for most people they are going to experience those things but you can use just as easily get trapped in those experiences and just go that way, just go horizontally without ever reaching a source. Yeah. So that's how, how I contextualize. That's how I contextualize the difference between enlightenment and mystical experiences. Yeah. There are several people in the world in the comment section looking for a Kundalini explosion. What advice do you have? Uh, just use the mystical experiences as a tool for investigation, right? So like, to get down to the source of consciousness, to penetrate through the emptiness of phenomenons, you can use anything you're experiencing to do that. Like if you encounter a lot of mystical experiences or, um, you know, uh, see entities, just use them to deconstruct phenomenons into emptiness. And see that they're fundamentally the same thing as perceiving a rock or um, imagining a, a rock or... Uh, or having a dream, or you know, eating ice creams. <laughs> they're they're all the same stuff. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I think mystical experiences are great. I think psychedelic like, experiences are wonderful. Yeah, I, I I think they're kind of like, it's kind of like Buddha just would throw candies at you on the path. It's like because like when you go down to the source of consciousness, for most people, the more like mystical experiences you're gonna have because the more you're dissolving, the deeper into the into the nature of reality or nature of mind you're 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 you're, you're going. So. It's actually for a lot of people, at least for me personally, it's a sign of progress, actually. So even though it could be a distraction for a lot of people, it's at the same time um, a sign of progress for a lot of people. So like Buddha is throwing candies on the path and then you eat it and be like, okay, I'm going the right direction. It's a little reward, but then don't get, don't cling on to them. Just keep going. There are places like shrines and at least ostensibly sacred temples and people meditate in proximity to it so what role does this proximity play are these places indeed sacred um ultimately not they're they they do not really play that much of a role i mean you you can attain the same insight sitting in your bedroom as like the holiest places in the world yeah i mean you're looking inward to the nature of mind until you flip yourself inside out right so you can do that um anywhere and when you do flip yourself inside out Everywhere is the same. Like I used to go on, this, I used to, um, I used to go to temples and then just feel like super euphoric and be like, "Holy shit, this place has super good vibes!" Like, oh, I feel like my spiritual, like, um, my spiritual muscle just got bigger just by being in this temple. When I see a statue of a Buddha, I would get like goosebumps. But now, when I see a statue of a Buddha, I just see a rock. Like, I just see like empty rock. Like, it's no different than perceiving this water bottle. Yeah, like sitting in my sitting stillness in my home. So meditating or not meditating, it's not different than like filming in the city of New York for like 12 hours a day. It's, it's just the same thing. It's the same stillness, same vast spaciousness. So 
ultimately it doesn't make a difference. But if you're still on the path, you can use that as an anchor. You can use like um, temples and even basically every single spiritual tools is an anchor. You use one anchor to dissolve another anchor until all anchors dissolve themselves. But then ultimately the entire spiritual paradigm has to be transcended. Like you realize the entire spiritual paradigm um, is just another fabrication. It's just a tool for you to use. And like Wittgenstein said, you know, you use your you use the ladder to climb um, this mountain, and then after you climb to the top of the mountain, you 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 throw away the ladder. You don't need it anymore. Like even the Buddha said something similar. He's like, um, the Buddha said, even emptiness is empty. What he means is that even the whole Dharma, his whole teaching is empty. His whole teaching is just a tool fabricated for you to use so that you can realize your true nature. But once you realize your true nature, you realize that that the entire paradigm of spirituality. It's actually no different than any other paradigms, any other programs. It's a program that you use to destroy all other programs, but in and of itself, it's just another program that you have to transcend. But a lot of people who get into spirituality, they never got through that program of spirituality. Like they would deconstruct and dissolve all the other programs. Now that I'm the spiritual being, you know, now I used to be a sex addict, I used to be in the, in the pickup program, I used to be in the gym program, I used to be in the artist program, and then I dissolve all that, but now I'm still in the spirituality program. Then you're not completely free yet because you're just trapped in spirituality. But then, you, so you have to let that go as well. But most people like can't let go of the last step because the, the last speck of their ego identification still need to cling on to something, and that something is, is spirituality for a lot of people that are on the spiritual path. That's why they they will be into spirituality for like 10, 20, 30 years, going to like going kind of retreats, but they don't seem to um, progress as fast as they like. Yeah, maybe because they're sitting on the program that they are using to try to deconstruct the program, they don't realize. What's the important okay of a guru? What's the importance of it? Uh, the only true guru is yourself. The only true guru is whatever is in your direct experience right now. But of course, the gurus can be very useful. I mean, I wouldn't get to where I where I am without looking up uh, gurus on the internet. Like I, I don't have a teacher, like direct teacher. I don't have a teacher in real life, but quote unquote real life. <laughs> but I watch a lot of videos and I read a lot of I read a lot of books. So those were my gurus. Like the internet was my guru. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think it's definitely important to have a, it can be very useful for, to have a guru but again guru is just like uh, the same thing as having mystical experiences it can be a distraction as well you know a lot of people have gurus and their identities attached to that guru attached to that tradition attached to that practice and never break out of it so yeah the guru is just a tool but they ultimately you have to let go of all teachers all teachings until you're the last teacher and then you have to let that go <laughs> Okay, so then do you believe in spiritual guides? Um, that I've met in real life or just people that... Um, I don't know. <laughs> everybody. Yeah, I see. The, the thing is, that, like, I, I look at everybody's teacher. Every single person you encounter on the spiritual path, every little thing you encounter on the spiritual path is your teacher. And how does one get swole? How do you get swole? How does somebody get swole? Well, um, you eat more calories than you burn and and then you uh you you progressive overload on your weights it's actually pretty simple to, to get swell it's actually pretty simple yeah you just you know try to lift more weights try to uh lift more reps with the same weight or put more weight on the bar and eat, eat more than eat more calories than you than you are burn off so those um, calories are going to the muscles Dude, I don't even know how to get swell anymore because like, I don't really, like when you asked me that question, I was like, how do you get swell? Because it's like, I've been getting swell for like so many years. I, I don't get swell anymore. Like I kind of 
don't work out for that for that reason anymore. I just do it to maintain because I like it. So it was like, well, how do you get swole? Yeah, just eat more proteins. And I guess it became a sort of second nature to me. Like I also train people in like how to get swole, I guess. But then it's just, yeah, it's just pro- progressive overload and, and, and eat more. Yeah. Where do you find the motivation to work out? Oh, motivation. I think you just got to build the habit, you know. Um, at first, go to the gym like, once or twice a week and then once you start to build up the habit you you just rewire your brain it'll be like breathing that, that, that's what's pretty much what fitness is to me now it's just like breathing it's just like going to the bathroom it's like i have no desire to want to look bigger or more shredded i have no desire to get fat either but i'm just naturally doing it like when i go to the gym now it just feels like it just feels like i'm not even doing it it just feels like the, the universe is like lifting itself so it's like 100 like natural for me it's like flow state but then not only because of like awakening, but also because I've spent like 20 years lifting and, and, and teach myself how to lift until they seep down to the, to the cellular level. And the same thing with, uh, with meditation, right? Uh, same thing with, I think meditation is just like any, any athletic events, just like any, um, it's the same thing as, you know, trying to get muscle, the same thing as getting better at the violin. It's the same thing as trying to learn a, a language, try to acquire any skills, right? At first you kind of, have to like consciously learn it with your cortex and you have to think about it and then you let the knowledge seep down into your heart and into your gut until they are seeped down to the cellular level that's why people go into this spiritual path they have glimpses but then they contract back they, they have it and they lose it they're like oh my god i'm awakened and they contract back that's kind of like an athlete going to a flow state and then they lose it or like you play the violin you know oh I, I, for this passage i can play without thinking i'm in flow state but then i fuck up again because you, you, the, the knowledge hasn't seeped down into your cellular level. You, you haven't completely rewired the brain yet. So once you rewire the brain, it just becomes like breathing to you. Just like the meditative state, once you rewire the brain, um, what used to be like a huge big bang, like, holy fuck, I glimpse it for five seconds becomes your moment-to-moment reality. Yeah. Let's take a, let's take a brief digression. What's your favorite piece on the violin? Uh, Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto. That's my favorite, like, concerto, I think. And also the Brahms. Brahms is awesome, too. Brahms and Tchaikovsky. Dude, his, uh, his stuff is like, oh my god, I can't even describe it. It's like, the, the talking about, like, expansion and contracting, he's just, like, max effort expansion and contracting, like, happening simultaneously. It's like, you can just clearly see how the, the two codependent arise. It's like, there's, the, the reason why you feel like an explosion, orgasmic explosion on some of his passages is because he gives you that contraction before that. That's how all music is. All good music, all good music is the process of the expression and contraction. Yeah. So you can apply that to everything. Yeah. Yeah, I like Bach too. Yeah. Vivaldi is good too. Yeah, Four Seasons, class, the, 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 the classical stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but Tchaikovsky's primary favorite. <laughs> Do you gain any insight or motivation spiritually from music? Yeah, we can talk about that as well. I think music and meditation. I mean, I started out as a musician. I started playing violin when I was five, so that that's that's sort of at the core of my being, right? So when I started to get into meditation, I was like, "Wow, this is just like music." Like, I see another way I describe the natural state is like it feels like the the universe or God is DJing to itself. It, it just it just feels like music everywhere, right? Like whatever high that I used to get from music or playing music or hearing music, like I get it now just through my direct experience, like moment to moment. This is like everything is just music. Like every single sensation that arises is just like, ah, 
right? So it's like, like music, I think is one of the best ways to like glimpse infinity, I think, because it's one of the most abstract art forms that uh, you can't really see it, right? You, like it's, it's just so abstract. It's just like energy. It's like pure energy, right? And you can really sense um, like the notes uh, of, of music just arising through emptiness and then going back into emptiness, right? And the silence between the notes is actually made out of the same thing as the notes themselves. It's all empty. But then within that emptiness, it vibrates and bursts into form. That's how music works. And you can extend that insight to sight, to taste, to the body, to anything, to all sense doors. So pretty much meditation is discovering that insight exactly the same way that music works. You know, the, the inside of expanding and contracting and, and the vibration of emptiness into form. If you look at string theory, it's like a lot of string theories will make the metaphor of how the, the vibration of the string uh, inside of a particle, a sub subatomic particle, it's like music, right? You, you This vibration, you have an A, this other vibration, you have C, and that's how music is constructed. But ultimately, all music, all notes are the same. It's just different degrees, intensity of expansion, contraction, and vibration. So meditation is tapping into that, like not just hearing music, but like in all your direct experience. Yeah. So music is great. Yeah. Also, like music, it's really a good way to like perceive that the panoramic um, view of awareness. Because when I tell people that your awareness or, or your experience is panoramic, uh, I, I, I use a lot of like um, 360 videos in my, in my uh, YouTube videos um, that, you know, to illustrate that, you know, awareness is actually panoramic. Um, and music is actually one of the easiest way to one of the easiest sense stores to tap into the panoramic nature of uh, of awareness, right? Because music is just all around, right? So hearing what's behind you and hearing what's in front of you and hearing what's to the left and to the right, it makes no difference. Like from the perspective of sound, there is no distance, there's no directions, there's no locality. So and you can actually expand that into all other sense stores. And, and, and perceive the nature of experience to be non-local and panoramic. So like meditating on sound or even meditating on music is one of the easiest way to access uh, the true nature of mind. Yeah. Just connecting the dots between like all kind of art forms or even like, you know, physics and just anything that you do. It's funny because once you, once you get into non-duality, you can see any, everywhere. Yeah, because it's the true nature of experience and everything is a resonating experience. Right. You can actually just watch a movie and be like, oh, okay, actually every movie talks about non-duality somewhere in there if you if you really watch it. But not even just that. It's just like everything that you see around you, you can kind of use that as a metaphor for like truth realization, which is I found really fascinating. But music is definitely one of the the the, the most obvious ones. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Music. Yeah. Have you heard of remote viewing? Oh, I mean, I've heard of it. I don't know what it is. Like, what is it? It's essentially people training non-local awareness. I mean, review mode. I've experiences like that um, when I was going through the path. Uh, experiences when I was experiencing uh, the world through other people's eyes. I've experiences again, like past lives or like other dimensions where out-of-body experiences. Yeah, but then uh, again, they're just content. That they're just content arising through consciousness. Uh, fundamentally, no different than. Anything that isn't re remote viewing. To me, just lo looking at you through the screen is no different from like astral projection. But then again, they're fun. They're actually a lot of um, traditions, they focus on that as a means to get to emptiness, like dream yoga, for example, 
or like practicing lucid dreaming, trying to stay aware during dreams or trying to do vipassana in dream yoga. Because in those states here, it's a little bit more uh, less solidified. So in a sense, the insights come easier during dream states or doing like, you know, out-of-body experiences, which again, I think it's also why when I was going through the path, there were a lot of those experiences. It's because like my mind was more valuable, more malleable. And then I was doing a lot of insight practices, you know, and my mind was more concentrated. So I was able to like access those states easier. But then, uh, I mean, I don't really like try to access those states anymore and they don't really uh, come to me as often as they used to just because I, I don't know why. I, I guess going back to my theory or uh, according to my experience about how most of those experiences are just a byproduct of the dissolution of solidity in the body-mind. Once you're dissolved, those experiences, unless you train them, which you can, like I know Daniel Ingram, which uh, he calls himself an arha, uh, and he is an arha. Um, he does a lot of like casino, uh, fire casino practices where it's pretty much, um, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's, uh, it's basically working with like clinical magic. Like, so that's his way of putting the emptiness back into the form. So I, I would say after realization, those abilities will come way more easier for you. And if you don't train in, they, they probably just won't occur as much. So my way of putting emptiness back into form is just like, like weightlifting and like making videos and things like that. I don't really do uh, anything with my mind like that anymore. Yeah. But maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Who knows? Yeah. How would you instruct someone who's a beginner to reach enlightenment? And I put those in quotes on purpose. And what's the plan? What's the path? Yeah, I, I think if you, it depends on what your goal is. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't, like not everyone wants to uh, attain realization. Right? Some people just want to explore consciousness. That's totally fine. Yeah, that's like just, you know, some people like to play basketball. Some people like to like, you know, play video games. Some people like to take psychedelics or meditate to uh, attain different uh, states of consciousness. And that's fascinating. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. But again, like I said, if your goal is truth realization or, or awakening, uh, that could be a very good tool, but that could also be a distraction. It all depends on like, how you use them and on context and stuff like that. So it's always good and bad. Everything's good and bad. Yeah. To me, the most magical thing is your direct experience right now, like the isness. Just the fact that you're conscious it is like the magic show. Like you can't get any more magical than that. Yeah, just the fact that every moment is like giving birth to itself. Every single moment, like I said earlier, is, is manifesting itself. That is already the greatest magic show of all time. How does that even happen? Nobody fucking knows. Right. So like whatever is arising within this magic show, like the magic show within the magic show just isn't as mind blowing to me anymore. It's just the fact that, that I'm experiencing something right now and I'm having a conversation with you and all this stuff. It's like surprising. And then you're all of it and none of it. And it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's for me is magic. <laughs> Oh yeah, the, the, the answer, oh, you, you had a question about enlightenment, right? So I think the best way to answer that question is only enlightenment gets enlightened. It's the same, it's kind of like the same thing as the magic, as the, as the magic show, right? It's like, there's no one here to get enlightened. Only wakefulness wakes up to itself. That's the most direct answer I can give you about why enlightenment is. Um, uh, because the ego can never get enlightened. And again, the, 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 the point is not to, to like, kill the ego because you can't kill something that wasn't alive in the first place. It's just to see through its solidity. That's another trap that I, I want people to know is that 
you, you are seeing through the self as empty processes happening. You're not trying to kill the self. Because at the end, you know, this whole spiritual path is just about being your most authentic self. And your most authentic self is empty. And the paradox is to realize no self is to find the self. So higher self, self, and no self are actually just the same thing. Uh, Would the breath be the most rudimentary aspect of ourselves, or at least one of them, and, and thus serves as a simple route for one to get introduced into meditation? Yeah. So I remember when I first started meditating, um, again, I, like I said, I, I was doing it because I had such a sex, strong sex drive. So my friend who already went to a Vipassana retreat, he was like, Frank, why don't you just witness your thoughts? I was like, what does that even mean, witness my thoughts? Because like, I, think, I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of people, they go through their whole life without ever watching their thoughts even once. They're just thinking their entire life. They don't, they don't even know that they, there's an awareness around the thought, right? So watching a breath or just watching your thought, it's like the first step towards the, you know, the boundless nature of, 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 true, of truth. So imagine like piercing through a veil, right? So imagine like the, all the defilements and all the conditioning is like a veil. So when you watch your thought or watch a sensation, you're piercing through that thought and you create a very tiny little hole. And then you, every time you witness a thought, hopefully if you're making progress, that hole, that veil, that hole in the veil becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until the entire belt is gone and there's just emptiness. So even just watching your breath for the very first time on your first set of meditation, you are already creating a very tiny hole, a very tiny glimpse into emptiness. Tell me about some spiritual or metaphysical experiences. Oh, so those mystical experiences? Oh, I've had like, well, the, the best way I can describe those experiences is how similar they are to psychedelic trips. <clears throat> so like, if you've taken like NNDMT or again, DMT is a little different from 5-MO DMT. So the, most of the experiences are closer to my NNDMT experience, which I only took once. It's usually seeing like fractals of things like, you know, going in and out of each other and just like, you know, going to the wormhole and just your usual psychedelic stuff. You know, if you pull out one of those psychedelic videos, like the, the infinite spiral, things like that, that's what are very common when you're still going through the process, very, very common. Um, but the 5 ml DMT is the one that gives you a glimpse of non-duality right away. Um, that isn't really an experience per se. So what happens during a 5 ml DMT trip is that you get a glimpse of your true nature of infinite, vast infinite space. But then it's always laced with a lot of your bullshit too. It's always laced with a lot of your conditionings. So that's why you get the trippy stuff like filter on top of the vast infinite space. Right. So when I took the, the 5 ml DMT, I actually did two hits. The first hit, I was like spiraling my own mind. I was perceiving like infinity. I realized that wasn't it. So I took another hit and then that was dissolved and I, I glimpsed into the emptiness of true nature. So again, my direct experience right now is the emptiness of true nature without the, the visuals. Um, so like during the unfoldments, when my stuff is coming out, when the lenses of perception is getting dissolved, I experienced very similar stuff as well. Yeah. Just like, you know, having orgies with the whole universe, like, like having sex with like different entities. But I had an experience where like, I was like pretty much wide awake, but I was in a really like, I was awake, I wasn't sleeping, but then because I was going through like a Kundalini unfoldment. So like my state of consciousness was like altered. I literally saw midgets appearing like in my room, like trying to suck my d 
<laughs> like it was like right there. It was like mid deformed midgets. It's like just like a bunch of deformed midgets. And it, it came back like three or four times. Like it was just like little midgets, like right in front of me trying to suck my. And then I was like, okay, that's something I need to look at. Why is my. Why is that being projected onto in my consciousness right now? <laughs> yeah, but like I say, you know, sex was like one of the biggest conditionings that I needed to dissolve. So maybe that's probably why. So like a lot of those visions are like sexual, very sexual, and a lot of visions of like gods and like, you know, like like previous. Like I remember my one of my retreats, I experienced something like going back in time, like like. A, like just like becoming younger and younger until like before I was born and then there were like dinosaurs and like just the whole shebang like the birth of the universe all that stuff yeah, yeah so I experienced like pretty much everything you can read about in, in spirituality and like experiences that I've experienced them all and then now they're just like oh that was cool but where are they now like like they're, they're like to me this right here what I'm experiencing right now which is what everyone has experienced if they removed the like their the center it's 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 in a sense way more profound but at the same time way simpler than anything you can experience on like meditation or psychedelics so it's almost like the it's the merging of something that's like so divine is ordinary that <laughs> yeah. and the two are one you know you, you, if you can't perceive god in like a piece of shit then you haven't realized god right? you can't make any distinction between like this is god or this is not god this is truth this is not truth right it's a duality if you make that you can't make a distinction between this kind of mystical experiences closer to the source than like other kind of mystical experiences because everything is source when everything is source there is no source in a sense yeah so that's why i, I like to use this phrase when you truly realize god god disappears <laughs> <laughs> when you truly realize the self the self disappears when you truly have an insight you consume it it's like eating food you know when you eat a food the reason why it's disappeared is, is because it is embodied into your physical form so completely that it disappeared. So if there is still, if you're still perceiving God, then there's still a center, in a sense. Because most people who talk about God realization, they still have a center that's perceiving God consciousness that's over there, and they don't theorize about it or or, or, or just attach their egos to it. But then when you truly realize God, when you are perceiving the Godhead as the Godhead instead of perceiving the Godhead from still from the center uh, of the separate self, then God ceases to become even a thing. Yeah, so that's why when somebody asked the Buddha what he was after he's awakened, he's like, hey man, what are you? And he was like, I'm neither man nor God. I'm awake. So he's like trying to tell you that, you know, what God and man are just, well, they're just concepts in a way, right? But then again, it depends on who I talk to. If I talk to somebody who's like really into God, wait, I used to work God. I have a friend who's like Christian and then, I have no problem with using the word God to describe the natural state, right? If I talk to a, like a neuroscientist, I'll, I'll just go to the brain, right? If I talk to a non-dualist, I'll be like, yeah, there is no brain. <laughs> this is just what it is. Yeah, so it's, it's all of it. Yeah, it's all of it and none of it. <laughs> For people struggling with addictions such as sexual addiction, would you recommend meditation? Um, see, meditation is really, it depends on how, how deep you go with meditation, really. Like, if you, like, in the middle of the path, sometimes, like, when the conditions come up, you can actually make it more horny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so meditation is, is very tricky because when you get to the deep end of meditation, it's like, 
sometimes you can seem even more egoistical because now, because number one, you're more aware of the ego, so you can feel like more contractions because now you're aware of it before you're not aware of it. So you can become even more aware of your sexual drive. So you can, you know, experience those things even more like intensively. And then we have any kind of insights into like no self, just even just a little bit. Sometimes you use that as like an anchor for spiritual bypassing. It's like, oh, there's no self anyway. Let me just go fuck around and cheat on my girlfriend. And like, you know, that can happen. So like, yeah, like I said, it's, it's, it, it depends, man. Like it, it really depends. Meditation really can go both ways if you go down to the deep end of it until you, uh, unless you finish the job. <laughs> so that's why, you know, like going through the spiritual process is very similar to like going through a, a mental breakdown because you're losing the mind. You're losing at least the, the, the ego mind or the solidity of the mind, right? So like that process of dissolution, a lot of the, the, the reports of people going through mystical experiences and dark nights, it's very similar to like bipolar disorder or like schizophrenia. Like I thought I was going crazy for so many times, like you know, on the path. But then it's like, yeah, it's just like you just gotta get through it because <laughs> you're, you're dying. You're dying. When you look at a mental disorder through a spiritual lens, does that then give you the impression that they're misunderstood? Sometimes I think, yeah, yeah, like sometimes you know, like okay. So what is schizophrenia? Schizophrenia is pretty much schizophrenia is pretty much your ego gone amok. So like you hear voices in your head, you think it's real. You see images in your head, you think it's real. You can't distinguish between like reality and the mind, right? So, but in the natural state, in the awakened state, you you cease to make that distinction too. <laughs> but you're totally functioning like you're functioning even more normally than before. But then you realize that the, the what's in your mind and what's outside the mind, there's no distinction between inside and outside, self and others. And in a, in a way, it's kind of like, I, I don't want to say it's kind of like schizophrenic, being schizophrenic, but it, it, the, 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 it, it's, it, it, you know, we just, even just seeing a person on the street talking to themselves, you're like, okay, not even just, everybody talks to themselves, right? Somehow we believe the voice in our head to be real, right? So... Even that, it's a very mild form of schizophrenic, right? So then a schizophrenic person who is, you know, officially diagnosed or clinically diagnosed is just a more intense version of that. So with realization, you kind of see through how there is no distinction between the voice in your head and the voice outside. So you erase the duality between what's real and what's not real. In schizophrenics, that there is still such, like if you want to classify something as being schizophrenic, you're still making a distinction between what's real and what's not real. You know what I'm saying? Like if you have this person is schizophrenic because he can't tell the difference between reality and his own mind, right? Why are we at least seemingly detached from the natural state of mind or consciousness? Because uh, just because of conditioning, like the okay, we talk about like traumas, right? And like you know, all those traumas are manifested in you know the solidities in the body mind. That's what's separating us from like the unity of all things. So. People talk about traumas like, oh, something that happened to you when you're a kid, like you lost your job, broke your girlfriend broke up with you, you got abused, lots of trauma, sure, those of traumas. But just the fact that you were giving birth is already traumatic. The tra trauma of the existence. <laughs> so when I talk about the dissolving the standard, like the seer, the thinker, the doer, the hearer, right? Even the solidity in the head is a result of trauma. It's a trauma of separation, a trauma of identity. 
Right. So even just something as subtle as having a perceiver inside your head that's congealed, just, just congealed sensations that's trying to take credit for true nature. Even that's trauma because we're born and then our mothers gave us a name. And that moment is already conditioning. It's already a, 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 a sense of separation there. So over time, we have like hundreds and thousands of things that are like just piled up on a natural state due to conditions like that. That's just one example. You know, you go to school and then you, you have a certain role you play. Like when you go out into society, you have a job. And all those conditionings are manifesting themselves as physical solidities somewhere in the head or in the body. For most people, it's in the head because that's where most of our identification with the self is, it, it is with the perceiver. So, yeah, so to answer your question, the reason why we have um, sense of separation is because of culture, because of conditioning and culture. And like as a civilization, we the civilization cannot function without each person being separate, actually, because most of the stuff that arises out of monocivilization are the result of uh, separation. Charlie Dalsai, who's like one of my favorite teachers, he said he has experiences and which uh, I can relate to as well, uh, where he would tap into the minds of other people. That's how he defined reincarnation, actually. He said, oh, reincarnation isn't about my previous life as much as I'm experiencing other people's minds right now. So because our minds are interconnected, you know, like quantum entanglement, whatever you want to call it, because everything is interconnected, everything is codependent arising, and that individual minds have no locations, if you access non-duality, you are going to have experiences where you're tapping to other people's minds. That's why I get a lot of synchronicities all the time. Like people saying things and I, I know exactly what they're going to say or I want to say something and then they will say the same thing. Or sometimes when I'm editing a video, I'm answering a question like in my video and then the exact question will be asked by like a few other people like on Instagram. Just crazy shit like that happens all the time. And I don't look at them as anything that's like supernatural. I look at them as very natural thing that's occurring right because like the, the 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 fact that you think you are the separate entity enclosing your own mind is actually the unnatural state of being right the 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 dissolution of uh separation is actually the more natural way of being like animals probably communicate like that all the time right <laughs> yeah so spirit guys is one of those examples so i mean you can have a false spiritual guy who leads you to like places that are like you know further away from the truth, relatively speaking, or you can have spiritual guys that are pointing you to like closer to the truth, just like you can have a guru or you can read a book that's more or less useful than others. So to me, spiritual guides are probably legit, but of course you still gotta discern like what's, what kind of message you're getting, right? Is it preferred to be a more technologically advanced society or a more spiritually advanced one? And what the heck would that even mean? I think it's uh, the, the ideal state is the merging of both, like going back to the merging of, you know, integrating emptiness back into reform. The ideal civilization would probably be a civilization where everybody enters non-duality, everybody access their natural state, but then we still go on and develop like technological advancements in science, in art and everything. But then I think the world would look very different. I think in some sense, it uh, would be even more advanced technologically and scientifically and artistically if everybody enters a natural state. Because just a, a, as an example of my own life, like I'm doing everything that I used to do pre, pre-awakening. Like I'm still, you know, working out, playing the violin. I'm still going on dates. I'm still just doing like the things that Frank and used to do. I'm still editing videos. But then I'm doing it way more efficiently now because like your brain just undergoing this massive... Um, transformation like you're getting a new operating system of the mind because without all that bullshit out of the way everything becomes more efficient 
right? So I always say like recognizing your true nature is going back to how your brain and your body, your nervous system is wired before it was piled up by all these conditions and lenses of perception. So going back to doing things the way that, so you, you do them more efficiently because they're not filtered. They're, you're not as attached to like outcomes and you don't get tired as easily. Like I can work out 12 hours a day now without getting tired. It would just feel like I'm just still sitting still in my room. When I'm out there just filming 10 hours a day, it's just, I don't feel tired. And like even my conditioning at the gym just improved. I can like, you know, work out longer hours without getting tired because we spend so much of our time and energy and our calories building up this illusion and avatars in our head that we don't have energy like to do other things. So if as a civilization, if everyone uh, enters non-duality, I think uh, the technology would like advance as well and in a better, in, in a more compassionate and loving way. Yeah. So again, you said that the, the ideal civilization to me is the merging of the, the spiritual world and the material world. Because again, even on the personal level, there's no distinction at all between the spiritual and, and, and the material, right? Because if there is, there's a duality. Yeah, so the, the true non-dual civilization would be one that's like super advanced technologically and then everyone's enlightened. <laughs> and I think we're getting there. <laughs> because I think technology is kind of speed up this process too because of the internet, because of the psychedelics revolution, because we have the entire history is teaching at our fingertips. But just like any other tools on a spiritual path, you could also be the distraction. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's both. Yeah. Will we create an artificial consciousness? Um, probably, but like artificial consciousness to me is not different from like consciousness. Like, like, like if I, like people always ask me about like AIs, right? They'll like send me like stuff that the questions they ask. And you know how like, I think there's some kind of new, new website or something. You can type questions that AI will answer. I'm just looking at it, I'm like, that's really cool. But how is that different from when like somebody else who's a human being answering? <laughs> it's just part of the happening of the universe. Like you are already that consciousness that you're trying to create, right? So even though that's really cool, I'm excited to see where like artificial intelligence take us. Um, I think we'll, we'll get there, but ultimately I don't see the difference between artificial intelligence and just general intelligence or animal intelligence or anything else. And so are you optimistic about the future? I, I don't know if I'm optimistic or not optimistic. I, I think every way, I, I think everything, not just your personal life, but the entire universe is just the way it is. It's already perfection. Like I look at the, I look at the entire universe as like a Mandela, as like a fractal of Mandela, right? And then this fractal is always perfect regardless of what happens. So if you take a piece out of this Mandela, another piece would just immediately gave birth to itself because of this missing piece. Like that, that can actually be experienced in your present moment reality right now. So this Mandela, this infinite Mandela, which is your reality right now in the entire universe, always perfect. The only reason why I don't think anything is perfect or we have a bad day or, oh, this shit is like bad for civilization is because we're not seeing the big picture. We're not zooming out and seeing the whole Mandela. Yeah. Do you get asked these kinds of questions often? Uh, not the not the way that the way you ask because you're because most of my clients they just ask very specific questions about techniques or like like the meditations or or it's more it's more specific but you're touching things that I that I that sometimes I talk about with people but usually I don't talk about this that much 
I mean, there's stuff that I've been talking about with you that I talk about with my clients, yeah. But like the stuff that you just asked me, like about like AI sort of civilization, I don't really talk about them that much. I don't really have thoughts about them. When you ask me, I just kind of oh, this they just come out. So like they're they're not like my theory of everything or anything like that. They're just I don't know. It's just my perspective from from the non-dual perspective. That's that's how I perceive like the reality on a conventional level. So like I don't claim to have any ultimate truth. Outside of like experience. <laughs> All right, Frank, I'm going to butcher these pronunciations, but bear with me. How would the different states of mind along the path from a stream entrant to an arahant be differentiated? Um, you know how I talk about the, the two sides of the coin, like the expansion and contraction. Most people who got on a spiritual path only focuses on one side. You get like the Vipassana school, the mindfulness school, so where they just kind of deconstruct sensations down to the, to the quantum elements. But they're not expanding awareness. You know, they're contracting awareness into attention. They're really good at, you know, dissecting sensation, but they're, they're not expanding awareness. And you have the non uh, do nothing meditation school or the non dual school where they try to abide in awareness, but then they lack concentration. So I always say if you want to progress on a path as fast as possible, you should always combine both the expansion and contraction. If that sounds confusing, I always give the example of building an athlete. Like, if you want to build a really powerful and very fast athlete, you need to have both strength and speed because strength times speed is power. So if you're too slow, you should probably do some plyometrics, right? If you're, like, just someone who's, like, naturally really fast and don't have a lot of strength, if you want to jump higher, you can probably, like, do more squats, right? So it's the perfect combination of both strength and speed that gives rise to a powerful athlete. So enlightenment is kind of like power. You need the strength of the mind through concentration, and you need the vast spaciousness. And the vast spaciousness is instantaneous, right? It's almost like the speed of light, right? The only constant in the universe supposedly is the speed of light. The only constant in your experience is that vast spacious awareness. So you need both in order to, you need to tap into both the end of the spectrum, both the contraction and the expansion, both the vipassana, the mindfulness, and the do nothing meditation, the surrendering, the, the non dual stuff to build the perfect like uh, spiritual athlete, so to speak. So that's what the thing that most people are missing because they would get into one school, they'd just be like, okay. The non-dual school would be like, oh, you don't need to meditate. Like, you know, you just be. But then your experience of just be, if you're still contracted, you still haven't dissolved the solidity in the body mind through vipassana and concentration, it's not the natural state. And the, the Buddha school would be like, Oh, you have to, that there's a path to this thing. Like, you have to have a lot of concentration. You have to become very good at meditation. You know, you can't just be, you, did, you have to practice like five, five hours a day. There are attainments. You have to access this jhana and that jhana. You have to have a cessation, things like that. But then I'm all about merging the two schools together and just find out what works for you. How important are the jhanas? Uh, jhanas are, again, just like mystical experiences, are the byproduct of the solution. The, the natural state is kind of like the sixth jhana of infinite consciousness, but without the subject-object split. So if you get to the sixth consciousness a lot, then you can rewire your brain to kind of access that state. But then if you're in a jhana, that means there's still a meditator. Because jhana, just like psychedelic experiences, is this temporary state you can come in and out of. So the natural state is like the boundless consciousness, again, merging with a cessation that's permanent. So it's like a wake cessation. So that's why Adyashanda calls it a dark light. <laughs> So jhanas are like just another tool. But if you even if you don't practice like Vipassana or like Buddhist meditation, some people experience jhana anyway without knowing anything about jhana. It's just because they go through the process of dissolution.
So dramas, in a sense, is kind of like a preview to the path, in a sense. Uh, you get a little glimpses, a little preview of this ex process of expansion and contraction. But it's like a microscopic, a miniature version of, 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 the, of, the, of the entire spiritual path. So if you do that enough, if you get enough previews, then for most people it's easier to like, you know, watch the whole movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's not necessary, but it's a very useful tool, just like psychedelics. What are the defilements? The defilements are just conditionings, the solidities, and traumas that are stored in the body mind. So let, let, let me give you a, a visual metaphor for that. So imagine like your true nature is buried like in a pile of mud, right? So throughout your path of spiritual practice, you're trying to deconstruct and dissolve that pile of mud. So your true nature, the light, the light of consciousness can shine through. So the defilements and the conditionings and the solidities of the traumas, which is the same thing, or the stuff of the ego, the stuff of your identification, the stuff that makes you think you're separate from everything else, the, those are the defilements. So all the spiritual practices are just tools to dissolve that defilement, that mud that's covering up your true nature. And all the spiritual experiences are just a byproduct of the process of that dissolution. So like when the the defilements and when the, the the mud that's burying true nature is starting to dissolve, your experience will become like more psychedelic, right? Because like it, it's it's you you you're becoming less solidified. That's why things are morphing, moving, vibrating, undulating. Lights are dancing and things like that. Yeah, that's why you experience like kind of liney stuff, like your energy going through your body, and you see like uh, trippy visuals and things like that. So then every time you poke a hole through that veil, what happens? Your stuff comes out. All the stuff that's buried, that's you know, manifested as the mind, that's you know buried on top of the, the infinite light of true nature comes up. So then you have to let awareness dissolve it. And that's where the dark night of the soul comes in. When that stuff comes out, you're going to feel like un very uncomfortable. right? So another way to describe it is like the only reason why you're not awake is because of all the stuff you're afraid to look at. Because once you look at the stuff, you're piercing through the veil. And you let it come out. You let it be released. And when you surrender it, you let awareness dissolve it. Can a method of meditation itself be an obstruction? Yes, yes, yes. That's why, that's why the, the, the no method method of the do nothing meditation is the expansion part of it. You're just trying to surrender and let go and do nothing. Uh, and then if you just sit there and do nothing and stare at the wall for like 10 years, you, you'll probably become enlightened. Because they, even like getting bored, wanting to move, that's conditionings, right? So if you just sit there and do nothing and then become uninvolved with whatever is surfacing, they will be released, right? But then you can also, that's going from the outside in. You can also go from the inside out by doing Vipassana, by contracting awareness to tiny, you know, laser beam of attention and then deconstruct the solidity through the meditator. Right. But then the do nothing meditation and the, the just sit, you don't even take that into consideration because that that can create its own solidity. Because a lot of people go to like Vipassana retreats for like 20 years, 40 years, and they still don't have stream entry, which is like the first level of awakening. Why? Because they're just becoming better meditators. They're becoming better observers. Right. But the whole point is to deconstruct the meditator and erase that duality between the object of meditation and the meditator. So that there's absolutely no distinction between the observation, the observed, and the observer. It's all just one seamless process. But then if you just sit there and meditate through the perspective of the observer for 20 years without recognizing the fact that you are still doing it from the meditator, from the observer, 
without realizing that the witness is just more solidity that you're congealing. It's a more subtle form of the ego, but it's still the ego. The meditator is just another form of the ego. But if you take that all the way, if you take the Vipassana path all the way, like I said earlier, if you truly deconstruct the, the object of meditation to emptiness, the meditator will be dissolved as well. Because if you dissolve the object of meditation, the meditator will simultaneously be dissolved as well. Because you see that insight not just through the object of meditation, but through the, uh, th you, you apply that to the meditator as well. So the do-nothing meditation where you just sit and don't apply any techniques, one of the advantages is that you don't have to go through that process of like using the meditator as an anchor or even using the direction of attention as an anchor. You just kind of bypass all that and then just realize that even the meditator, it's just more sensations that are congealed. How does a sense of self change along the fourfold path? It's just more, more solidity gets dissolved, more defilement gets evaporated. So the, the vast spaciousness opens up more. So the only difference between the stream enter and the second path person and the third path person and Arha is just the amount of solidities that are dissolved and how much spaciousness is opened up. So throughout my path, like every time I go through a path, the sense of self becomes less and less localized and the awareness becomes more and more panoramic and boundless. So during the first three paths, there's still like an, there's still a bubble. So like when I reached your mentor, I was like, holy shit. So for the first time, I kind of know what uh, Douglas Harding was talking about when he said, you have no head. I kind of, I can kind of glimpse it. I, I really don't have a head, but then it's, there's still like a distortion in the field. There's still like this bubble that's wrapped like over my head. But the, it was very spacious compared to just being completely like stuck in the in, in, in the not so perception in, in the head. But it's still not the full thing. It's only like like five percent of what I'm experiencing right now. And then as I go on to the next path, the the spacious opens up more. The panoramic view just opens up more and more until the fourth path, the bubble bursts. So, one of the the, the major insights of fourth path or arhatship is that there is no distinction between awareness and sensations. Like perception, awareness, sensations, thoughts, body, everything is just one thing. You can say there's only sensations and that there's no awareness. Or you can say there's only awareness and there's no sensations. They're talking about the same thing. So during the, the second or third path, there is still a very subtle duality between sensation and awareness. You, you're still experiencing sensation arising and passing through this fabric of awareness. So going back to the anchor, you can say that in Vipassana, you are using the object of meditation and a meditator as the anchor, right? In the do-nothing meditation, you're using the vast spaciousness itself as an anchor. So in the do-nothing meditation, you are using the awareness to meditate on itself, in a sense. Where in the Vipassana, you're using the meditator to meditate on the object of meditation. But then every anchor has to be dissolved. So for most people, the last anchor is awareness itself. At least the awareness as a separate substrate apart from sensations and perceptions. Okay, now how would you ever know if you made it to the top, so to speak? The, the, the fourth path moment is so obvious and so, like, just so clear. There's no doubt about it at all. Like there, it's just there's no room for doubt because there's no gaps and distance between anything. It's like everything is completely full and empty simultaneously. That even leaves no room for any kind of doubt. When the mind recognizes itself so completely, when the universe penetrates itself so completely, it, 
the, the metaphor that I use is a snake, snake biting its own tail. Like if you see the logo of a snake biting its own tail or this like infinity sign that goes like this. Like every single sensation in my experience feels like this. Like the, the relationship between my body and the world also feels like this. Everything is just like this, like the infinity sign. Then when you reach the infinity sign, where is there to go? It is itself. Like there's absolutely nowhere to go. Like it becomes like so obvious that this is the most obvious thing that you can experience. It's the true nature of your experience. So the fourth pipe moment is just like, that's it. Like you just have no doubt that the search is over. Like that's the, I think that's one of the number one signs of whether or not you've done it. It's like the search is completely over. You're not looking for anything anymore outside of this direct experience right now. You can't get any more infinite than infinite. Right? If you're still searching, then you probably still have more ways to go. But then after that, you still need to integrate things. But the, the path after awakening, the integration path, the, the, the cleaning up after waking up, it's, you, you can still practice uh, and you, you can still like um, read about spirituality, but then the, the search is just not there anymore. Like you're not looking to gain any higher insights. You're not looking to become more empty. Uh, you're not trying to make awareness more aware. But then you can still, you know, practice to integrate the emptiness back into form, uh, refine the realization more and more. Because as as Ashanti said, the mystery just keeps getting deeper. It's like you flip a switch. There is a switch that you flip. And I think for most people that have gone through the process, they do recall a switch. Like after the switch is flipped, um, you, you can still do practices to refine their realization that just keeps going on deeper and deeper, maybe until like maybe forever because, you know, reality is infinite. Um, but then you really just not searching anymore. You're not seeking anymore. Yeah. But it's just like a huge relief. Yeah. Who's the greatest teacher in the Vipassana history? And do you consider yourself to be a teacher, by the way? Um, I don't know if I see myself as a teacher, actually. I mean, uh, I, 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 I say I coach people. <laughs> I don't know the the whole guru and student teacher student relationship like I'm not too comfortable with it like like I always say I don't have a teaching yeah but anyway that's another discussion um in terms of who I think is the best vipassana teacher I actually don't know that many vipassana teachers like throughout history I only know the modern ones uh, for me the most influential ones are uh, Daniel Ingram like his book the mastering the core teaching of the Buddha I think it's like the book that I think that's the book that kind of uh, that was my book that that was like my Bible for and it's funny because I I, I discovered that book after stream entry like if I discovered that like when I just started the path I I, I maybe like I, I wouldn't get as much out of it it wouldn't make sense or not at the right time but I think I discovered the, the perfect time but that book and uh, I think Michael Taft is also another great teacher and then he's the one that really focuses more on the expansion part of it. So through Daniel Ingram and Michael Tapp, I was able to understand the similarity and the difference between contraction, the Vipassana, and do nothing meditation, like the expansion. So those two teachers I consider like the most influential and also Kenneth Folk and Shi Jin Yang. So the, the, the teachers that I recommend to people, the books that they write and the stuff that I talk about, they're more like manuals. Uh, they're, they're they're more like workout manuals, you know, how to get big instead of like theories. I mean, there's a little bit of theories, sure, but then they don't really talk about the nature of the universe that much. They just talk about how do you recognize your true nature? Like here's the steps and you can do it. And that's why it's, they're called the pragmatic Dharma uh, circle. Um, it's like a, this kind of this wave of American teachers that, you know, gain their insights from like 
other teachers with lineages and they just kind of like made it their own thing and try to pass on the dharma pass on this like knowledge or this wisdom and the, the techniques that are like thousands of years old or hundreds of years old and make it applicable applicable to the modern man who is living in modern civilization yeah and there are many messages that anyone can do it it's just like you know can anyone look like ronnie coleman but not maybe not but most people, if they put in time and effort and they know what the fuck they're doing, they can look like Brad Pitt from Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Frank, where can people find you? Uh, I'm most active on, on Instagram. Uh, just www.instagram.com slash bean underscore Frank underscore Yang or just my YouTube. You can just type in uh, Frank Yang. My channel is just called Frank Yen, or you can go to my website. It's uh, www.frankyen.wtf. What the fuck? <laughs> the podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked on that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting theoriesofeverything.org. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. Every dollar helps far more than you may think, Either way, your viewership is generosity enough. Thank you.